1: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Well, today, you know, I'll be lucky if I can get a few chores done around the house. It is Tuesday after all, right? No, I don't have high expectations. Other people, though, they've got bigger issues to deal with, such as how did the universe come to be? I mean, sure, you've heard of the Big Bang Theory, but there is a lot more to the study of this area. For instance, what does the creation of the universe have in common with black holes? It's an intriguing concept that we are going to talk about with Dr. Paul Sutter, research professor of astrophysics at Stony Brook University's Institute for Advanced Computational Science. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so
3: much for having me.
2: Now, tell me about this theory involving black holes and the universe. Like, I understand that it is like a little bit controversial.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what we observe are a few interesting coincidences between the properties of black holes and the properties of the whole entire universe. Uh, Black holes are defined as this region cut off from space. They have what are called event horizons, these invisible boundaries that once you cross them, you can't ever escape. And the universe, too, has an invisible boundary due to the expansion of the universe. If you get too far away, uh, you're never able to come back because of the rapid expansion of the universe. And another property of black holes is that they have singularities. These are points of infinite densities in their centers. And the universe itself has a singularity. We call it the Big Bang. It's a point of infinite density at
2: essentially the dawn of time. Okay. All right. I'm staying with you on this. I'm with you so far on this one. So then what kind of similarities do we have? Like what, why are we suddenly thinking or the sudden thought that perhaps we have some similarity to a black hole?
3: Well, uh, this, this sim- these similarities were noted a few decades ago, uh, once we started understanding black holes more and once we started making more observations of the wider universe. Uh, but there are some key differences uh, that set the universe apart from a black hole. The most important thing is the nature of that singularity. When it comes to a black hole singularity, it is a point in space. It's a place I can visit. If if I had a powerful enough rocket, I could travel in space. I could go to the nearest black hole. I could fall underneath the event horizon, and I could uh, uh, die horribly in crushed to death in the singularity, but I could visit it. But the Big Bang singularity, I can't visit. It's in the past. It happened almost 14 billion years ago. It's not a point in space, but a point in time, and so... We went from thinking maybe the universe is a giant black hole to then thinking, well, there, there are differences in the natures of the singularities, and so they're not quite the same, uh, but now there is an intriguing possibility, and I want to stress that this is deeply hypothetical. This right. is beyond the edge of physics. This is in the dark, unknown, here be dragons' lands of physics, um, which is... The ultimate truth is that we don't fully understand what happens in singularities. We do not have a physical theory that is fully capable of describing what happens at those enormous densities, enormous pressures at those such tiny scales. We don't. We, we have no description of what actually happens. And so there are some ideas floating around that maybe. The black hole singularity where physics gets so crazy, maybe physics gets so crazy that it can be serve as the nucleation point for brand new universes.
2: Hmm. So what are the challenges then in finding out more about this?
3: Yeah, the major challenge is that we can't ever access the inside of a black hole, you you can travel there, you can travel through the event horizon. And then if you were to go and travel through the event horizon and encounter the singularity, you could perform some experiments, and you would have, you know, ultimate revelations of our nature of physics. But the problem is, you wouldn't be able to tell anyone about it. Because nothing can escape a black hole so you can't share your knowledge with the wider universe from the outside black holes are the ultimate safe so we cannot crack them we cannot get inside. So to understand what happens in a black hole, we have to turn to our theories of physics and our theories of physics are very powerful. They tell us about the nature of black holes. They tell us that black holes exist, but they don't quite tell us what happens on the inside. And so we can only guess about what's on the the inside based on our latest current understanding of physics.
2: Uh, Dr. Sutter, this is like the movie Interstellar.
3: Yeah, except it's not a giant library. I, I can right. tell you it's unlikely to be a giant <laughs> metaphorical library.
2: But that was the idea, right? Is that you could not get in there. It was a one-way trip kind of thing.
3: Yeah, uh, but then Matthew McConaughey, through the power of love, was able to get okay, out. Well so maybe that's what we're missing in our equations. But
2: my understanding is that when it comes to some of the science of that movie, it is, it is accurate.
3: Yeah, a large chunks of that movie were very accurate. Um, there was a uh, Kip Thorne is a, a genius, a Nobel laureate in general relativity, which is our modern understanding of how gravity works. He was attached to that film as a science advisor. Uh, they got everything right. Uh, but honestly, when uh, the main character reaches the singularity of the black hole we, we really don't know what goes on and it can be as crazy as the genesis of new universes
2: so then how do we study this
3: We study it with our minds, we study it with our theories, we study it with our ideas. We poke and prod at the very fundamental nature of reality itself using our knowledge of physics. And we take these theories that we develop, these ideas that we develop, we find other ways to test them, other ways to test them in particle accelerators or in observations of the cosmos uh, to give us confidence that these theories, these ideas are on the right track And then we we say what we think is happening in the center of a black hole, and then we go to bed.
2: (laughs) And then we talk about it in the morning, right? On the radio. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Dr. Sutter, thank you so much for your time.
3: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
4: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zeppound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a
1: million orders stage.
2: This is Mornings with Simi. Hey, let's check in with our Scott shots this morning. Scott, I'm having a bit of a dilemma. Oh, okay. Tell me about your dilemma. I, first of all, I know we're going to talk about the Canucks. I absolutely want to talk about the sure. Canucks with you because I love talking sports with you. You're the only person here who wants to talk sports with me. I sure do, yeah. Great. We'll do that in a moment. I'm having a bit of a fashion dilemma right now. Okay. I just asked the people that we work with a question about whether or not there's a particular item that I should buy. Okay. And um, was given the distinctive impression by one of them, not the other, that I am too old for said item. Okay, I, I don't when even know when do we begin to determine that perhaps we are we've aged out of a certain fashion trend. That's what I'm struggling with.
4: Yeah, I think okay, so I don't not knowing what the item is, I think because it's you, Simmy, and I know that you are not the type of person who's going to wear um and the, th- the difference here is I wouldn't even call these things a trend. One of the things that are like silly that like kid, like teenagers wear, I don't, I'm trying to think of a good example. I saw my niece over the weekend and she's all into like the oversized, like oversized everything. Yeah, I wore
2: that in the nineties. I right. don't need to wear That's it That's what I'm saying.
4: Like, though, I don't think that those things are fashion. I think those things are trends. So I think if it's like a fashion item there, you're not, you're never too old. I mean, you're I never need to
2: old. slightly update my wardrobe and... It's hard when you're trying to figure out, am I too old so t- for So t- tell this? me what it is. And now I really don't want to tell you what it is. Because if I say it out loud, it just, it feels like I'm definitely too old but for they, it. But
4: they already know. I already do. Whatever it is, I don't think you're too old for it. Because you, just because I know the person that you are. It's it w- faux leather pants. I think that's totally fine. I think you can totally pull that off. I think that's totally fine. A hundred percent. Our producer, Greg, told me I was too old. You're talking to Greg for fashion advice? To Greg? <laughs> I've known him for a really long I mean, time. I mean, love, I love Greg. I love him. But yesterday, I don't know if you were here, but I had this conversation with Corey, who is Mike Smith's producer, because I was wearing green jeans, right? Yes, and he yes. commented on my green jeans. And I made this statement about how I think that in future, I would love to see men's fashion where we go to plain shirts and and patterned or colored pants like I really like that idea and so Corey and I were kicking around some men's fashions ideas and then Greg in that conversation admitted that he's like I don't care at all about fashion I just want to be comfortable.
2: He's wearing the same hoodie that he wore when I first met him 13 years ago <laughs> to be fair <laughs> and, and that's not even an exaggeration
4: the faux leather pants thing is it my wife just got know. a pair and oh, she's, ro- she's rocking them high. Your wife
2: hard. is like years younger than me so. Yeah th-
4: that doesn't matter you, it's, ha- it's all about the attitude I mean, I think you can totally pull it off. All
2: right. Well, I'm going to seriously, I've been thinking about it. Wait for it for a year. Oh
4: I say go for it. I say go for it. You own it, Simi. I
2: don't know. I'll, I'll think more about it. But now let's talk about the. Thank you for that. Let's talk about the Canucks because okay. I love this story. Love the choice. Quinn Hughes is the new captain. Yeah,
4: absolutely. Twenty-three years old. He's been in the league always for the Canucks for five years. He was drafted in 2018, and uh, I think that I I agree absolutely. The right choice. A lot of the discussion in the off season was kind of between him. And JT Miller. And uh, I think Quinn is the right choice. He's younger. He has a lot more sort of positivity surrounding him. And it's says. No a, drama with Quinn Hughes. No I drama. Find he's the steady Eddie. Yes.
2: He says he, he clearly is a great team leader. I love the fact that there were so many players out yesterday for the announcement. Well, that's what it I was, was going to say.
4: Yeah, even JT Miller, Elias Petterson, Thatcher Demko, like the core guys all showed up, you know, to sort of yes. lend their support. Even Bo Horvat, the previous captain, tweeted at him saying, like, great choice, like, super Excited, he's the right guy First for it. First of all, Bo, who? No, he Thank can Thank you. Go. <laughs> <laughs> a nice little accolade there, you know. But I think I absolutely think that he, you know he's got a long-term contract. He's going to be our guy, and uh, for sure the right choice to carry the team. But the story behind the story, and I love this so much, is the Canucks put out the press image right <laughs> And this with is so like funny. the sea, the captain, and it's Quinn skating in front of it, and it's like our new captain, yay! And in the back are sort of like silhouette it's images, like a montage yeah. of all these other captains of all the previous captains so Quinn is the 15th Canucks captain and so it would make sense that in the back are 14 previous captains but no you would think 13 captains pictured there noticeably absent from the photo Mark Messier
2: and what I love is that it was noticeable right away immediately people in the press conference were like wait a minute where's Mark Messier on that I have I have no problem with them leaving oh, him off.
4: I'm glad they did. I think it's exact like they want to like earn the like earn the fan base back. This is how you do it. Marc Messier last played for the Canucks in the 99-2000 season. He was with us for 3 years and th- there there is no debate about this. You might have debated who was going to be the next captain of the Canucks. No one is debating that Marc Messier is the most hated Canucks player in history.
2: Oh, he's, okay, wait a minute. You're that's Okay, I have no doubt he's the most disliked captain, especially oh no. the way
4: he got the captain. The but
2: you're player. saying he's the most hated Canucks Absolutely. player,
4: period? For, no question. He is the reason that Mike Keenan came here yeah, and know. got rid of Trevor Linden, who is the greatest yeah. Canuck of all time. The greatest Canuck of all time. I'm sorry, I
2: I'm one of the I love Trevor Linden. Don't get me wrong, but I really believe the Sedin's are the greatest Canucks of all time. Ah,
4: okay. There's some debate there. There's some debate, but that guy at the time, you know, we were all talking about how Trevor Linden was like the future mayor of Vancouver. He's the greatest thing to ever. You know, we all loved him so much. And Mike Keenan came in and traded him away. Traded away Kurt McLean, Gino Ojek, all these guys, and Mark Messier, who's supposed to be like one of the greatest, if not the greatest, leader of teams, came in and just mailed it in for three years here and, in, and just like didn't even try. Oh, so hard. I don't even think he
2: remembers playing here. You know what I mean? When he talks about his career, I don't ever hear him talk about Vancouver. No,
4: and it was just a big paycheck for him. Yes, he was making was. $6 million a year, and then he got this $2 million bonus because the fan base increased or whatever. It's all a bunch of political stuff, but it was a bad, bad era for the Canucks, and he was left off of the post. So,
2: yes, you agree with the airbrushing
4: removal of that era of Canucks history? No question. I'm glad that we remember it because I love to bring it up and and talk about how bad he was and trash on him. I just don't want him in any of the photos, you know?
2: Okay. I'll I'll go with that. But also, so we'll just say great choice on
4: Quinn Hughes. Let's leave it on that. Great choice on Quinn Hughes. As a
2: Canucks fan, are you hopeful for this year? Yeah,
4: I think we're going to make the playoffs this year. Barely, but I think we are. (laughs) Spoken like a true Canucks fan.
2: Thank you for that, (laughs) Scott. This is Mornings with Simi. I think it's impossible to hear that song without singing along. And I'm willing to bet you that Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News, was just singing along, weren't you, Rob? Uh,
5: oh, God. We need some brighter music to get us going in the morning. Need some. I'm to get back sorry. to Taylor Swift, I think.
2: What did you just say?
5: It's more Taylor Swift. I, you I don't think like really country roads?
2: Well, I mean,
5: don't like is a strong. I'm sorry. Term. How many I days just,
2: do you have left? When is Vaughn back? <laughs>
5: We can put a lot of vacation early. <laughs> no vacation, Vaughn. Get back to work.
2: No kidding. We question your musical taste. Anyway, okay. we do not question your political taste. That's what we're going to talk about today. So BC United has a big announcement coming up this morning. What's going on?
5: Yeah, well, I mean, the timing in politics uh, is everything. And the BC United uh, sort of tough on crime Tough on addictions, tough on um, you know prosecutions. Kind of platform is coming out this morning. It's going to be a big one. It's going to be very similar to uh, remember their uh, mental health and addictions platform that was earlier this year that called for you know uh, more than a billion dollars in investments in mental health and addictions and all sorts of things that the NDP government end up trying to copy a few weeks later and and didn't even manage for whatever reason to come up uh, with an exact copy of it. They fell short. So that was a win for BC United and trying to offer something to the electorate and this morning they are going to try again. We know um, in the past that the party has talked about wanting some type of more mandatory addictions treatment that it feels uh, that that is a path for people who have lost the ability to make decisions about their own health uh, anymore that is ironically something premier david eby had talked about in his leadership bid and then backed away from amidst uh, some criticism from the civil rights uh, types uh, who don't think forcing people into treatment uh, when after a certain number of overdoses or whatever metrics is the right way to go Uh, and we know bc united's talked about more police more prosecutors uh they we know that they're very critical of safe supply and decriminalization Uh, and they've been pushing for that province-wide ban on public drug use in parks and beaches and things like that, again, putting the government on its heels, forcing the NDP to begrudgingly admit a few months ago that maybe they should have done that. Uh, And they're sort of now working on a really, really very slow, I'm not sure where it is, kind of uh, larger provincial thing on drug use in parks. Uh, So I would expect put all that into some type of plan, uh, and we're going to get that from the leader this morning.
2: Okay, so as you said, timing is everything with this. This has been in the works for a while. Do you think it's resonating? Because they hit this hard during a couple of recent by-elections.
5: Yeah, the by-elections results would indicate it's not resonating, although, um, you know, those were ridings where they're a bit unique Vancouver Mount Pleasant. Uh, and running on a sort of tough on crime agenda in uh, a longtime NDP stronghold, that is far more uh, about New Democrat kind of treatment values and and uh, progressive values than than what the BC United Party was offering. But I do think you know, with everyone discussing the stabbings uh, that occurred uh, on Sunday at the Chinatown festival and the the case of the accused in in that who uh, was out on a day pass, uh, who killed his 16-year-old daughter in 2006 while living in Kitimat, who then got out for escorted community access, who then allegedly stabbed a friend while in a psychotic state while while on an unsupervised visit, and then has got into all sorts of incidents with other police departments, according to Vancouver Police, and then is back out again, uh, allegedly stabbing people. That is going to, uh, give BC United this morning an opportunity to say this revolving door system is nonsense and this government hasn't done a good enough job cracking down on it. Now, the government will say, well, it's very complicated. You've got, you know, Ottawa and the criminal code and judges and bail and but those kind of answers um only go so far. You know, people don't really want to often receive a laundry list of the reasons you can't fix something. They, um, they look eventually for solutions on why you can. And so I think there's an opportunity for BC United this morning, timing just happening to be what it is uh, to really drive that message home. Uh, and we will see what Kevin Falcon does with that. And we'll see what David Eby does with it. Cause he's up in Surrey um, this morning talking about a hospital plan again. Um, and he's going to get questions about this and his, His response in the past on these kind of revolving door things is, well, it's Ottawa's fault. Right. Um, And that hasn't been changed yet. So Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how long he's going to keep that line or what he's going to do in response.
2: All right. We are back talking with Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News, about a couple of announcements coming our way today. One from the BC United opposition party and then one from the NDP government. These seem an awful lot like either election or pre-election announcements, Rob.
5: Yeah, well, especially in Surrey, where this government needs to focus its attentions to try and kind of hold that strong, uh, you know, block of votes that it has in in that area of the of the Lower Mainland. Look, like at this point, thirteen months away from the election, the opposition is going to be looking to kind of sharpen its teeth on what it's offering the electorate because. We know from polls that people don't really seem to be following the BC Liberal to BC United name change. It confuses them. So the way to cut through that fog is to make big, big promises on things people will remember. And the the United Party is counting this morning on this tough on crime plan to kind of cut through that fog so that maybe... People who don't pay attention to a lot of politics will pick up on the radio this afternoon or on the newscast tonight, one of the promises, and it will stick with them. They'll go, oh yeah, who was the one who was promising to do whatever? Uh, and that is a double-edged sword. It's a great tactic for an opposition, but it's also a year before an election, a chance for your opponents, the governing NDP, to steal your ideas. And this party already has stolen some ideas. as part of politics. That's how it works uh, and then try to take credit for doing them, and so it, you know you have to balance those two things out in politics, uh, and you have to try and get people's attention, but not come up with such a good ideas that you that the government <laughs> steals them and does them. But we will see a lot of that over the next year. All the big markers of of things that happen will become election promises as the opposition uh, BC and I try to lock in that platform to to get a bit of public attention.
2: Right. And also, I'm sure, you know, a lot of people just they don't pay attention necessarily to what's mm-hmm. going on with politics unless there is an election. A lot of people kind of lock in when an election campaign actually gets underway
5: and people don't pay attention to politics until it affects them and whether it is That's you know true. your taxes suddenly maybe you've opened a small business and you're paying your taxes or your property taxes go up or you're a victim of crime or you wait 12 hours in a hospital emergency room suddenly you want to know who's going to change things to make it better and if the united party can come out with a bunch of things in its platform this morning on crime that will resonate with people if you're scared walking downtown. If you see someone, you know, in distress using drugs downtown and you hear from the NDP that, no, you know, more drugs, safer drugs uh, is the solution and the alternative from another party resonates with you, then then you carry that forward uh, beyond the day-to-day of politics and it, uh, people can vote on those type of things. So that's the calculation um, because you're right, a year from now, even until even during an election, you know, four week election, it's not really until halfway the last week that people start to pay attention. Right. And so you've got to try and shake uh, a little bit of their attention uh, elsewhere. Affordability is another big one, too. So, oh, yeah, we'll see how that goes. I think this morning is a one of those um, one of those big election moments.
2: Well, let's talk about the announcement in Surrey then. So this is Premier David Eby. What is this one actually all about?
5: Well, we don't know quite yet, but it looks like it's related to, you know, uh, another hospital in Surrey or the sort of continued small incremental, um, (laughs) you know, moves towards another hospital in, in Surrey. And the government is in one of those positions now when you see their events that they sort of. Announce the announcement about the announcement uh, to try and maximize the announcements. You <laughs> yeah, know, well, like here, we've got a we we got a business plan, and now we finish the business plan and look at the title page for the business plan, and now the business plan's been approved, and now we're going for funding for the business plan. You know, so I think we're in that cycle out in Surrey, um, but healthcare being what it is, hospitals being overwhelmed, Surrey being perpetually uh, stuck in a kind of growth uh, situation the NDP will be there all the time talking about schools and talking about healthcare and hoping that people, again, remember that they were talking about it in in some way, but I don't, I don't expect we're going to get a lot of uh, coverage of that today. Maybe a little bit. I think BC United is counting on, swamping with its plan and i think people will be going to the premier and the government asking about this chinatown festival stabbing and saying what are you going to do about that and that'll probably mean whatever they had in in mind for surrey is is going to get pushed off the radar today but
2: they'd be prepared for that right like they can they should be able to see which way the wind is blowing on this thing
5: that's why it's interesting to to listen to their response Uh, you know david eby if he blames ottawa this morning for you know various legal um minutia. i think that tells you a bit about the new democrats having no pivot point on this that they don't know how to respond to horrific incidents like this they have nothing left to promise about it they've already directed prosecutors in their mind to crack down they've gone to ottawa they've brought in 500 i think it was 300 200 million dollars on more rcmp officers uh they've created uh more uh, kind of working tables on prolific offenders they're done. Um, That was their plan. And these things keep happening. And so when you analyze their response this morning, we're looking for signals that they realize it's not enough, and they're moving more, or they're defending, and they're not planning on doing more, or they're passing the buck to Ottawa. And that's what makes it so interesting to see that they know it's coming. And to look at how they handle it will tell you a bit about what they think they can and can't do uh, for the next election.
2: Okay, and as you pointed out as well, it also tells you that they still feel Surrey is incredibly important. If this announcement is happening, even if it's a a non announcement announcement.
5: Oh yeah, they've got a bunch of cabinet ministers, and Surrey. Surrey is sort of the battleground of Metro Vancouver. Although increasingly you see a tri cities in other areas, but but Surrey is kind of it. There's more ridings in Surrey than there are in the whole northern half of British Columbia. So you want to win, you want to hold. If you're the NDP, your dominance in Surrey and your cabinet ministers' ridings, and you want to be there every time. You can announce your re-announcement to an announcement, just just to hope (laughs) that someone shows up and take a picture. Yeah, (laughs) that's good. You can have it because I'm not going to remember it because it's you know six forty five in the morning. But. I you you go ahead and and use that one in the future. I think tell I will tell it to Vaughn, and then Vaughn will be like Simmy. That's great. That's a great line. You're
2: right. I would Oh, I'd like to try to take credit for it, but you know I can't. I'll say no. Rob Shaw came up with it. There's nothing. I, an announcement to an announcement to a re announcement. Uh, love it. That's what's going to be happening today. We'll break it all down with you tomorrow, Rob. Thank you.
5: Okay. Take care.
2: This is Mornings with Simi. Why? That's the big question right now. Why was a man with previous terrible assaults on his record allowed out on a day pass from a forensic psychiatric facility? Well, that man is alleged to have stabbed three people at the Lights Up Chinatown Festival, organized by the Vancouver Chinatown Foundation. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to talk about the issue of the release. But right now, we're going to talk about the impact this is having on on the community. This was a festival that was trying to restore, revive, spotlight Chinatown. I mean, two days outdoors with live performances, food trucks, family activities in a neighborhood that really needs that boost these days. Now, yesterday, Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim spoke with Jazz Joel Hall and had this to say.
5: It was an incredible celebration. It was so great to see. And then you have the incident where three innocent bystanders are violently assaulted. It's heartbreaking and uh, the trauma. I can only imagine how significant it will be for a long time. And not just with them, but the community.
2: That is Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim talking about the horrible situation that unfolded in Chinatown night before last. And for the community, it is devastating. Our next guest was actually on stage performing when these violent assaults happened. Christina Lau is an artist advocate from Hong Kong who joins us now. Christina, thank you for being here.
0: Hi, good morning. Nice to be here.
2: Now tell me about your performance here. I wanted to start with that too, because it was important for you to be at this festival, wasn't it?
0: It really was for me. It meant so much to me to be invited. Um, I spend half of my time in a lot of advocacy work, and I produce festivals as well myself. So knowing the Chinatown community um, and being in and around that area has been really important to me for years, um, ever since I moved from Hong Kong and uh, most recently from London.
2: And so did you feel like this festival was important for the community, that it was making a difference?
0: Absolutely. I think what a lot of people forget is that uh, there are two days that you see and then there's there's years of work um, and that happen. So bringing together and tying together a community culminates in those two days. But all of the work and all of the collaboration between businesses, getting together kind of the food trucks and the musical performances, um, it really is a tapestry of, of community members that make this happen. So the audience gets to enjoy these two days of really vibrant celebration. Um, but it's a year round, it's a year round thing. And it's, um, light up Chinatown has been on my mind and in my heart for, since it started last year.
2: What was the crowd like on Sunday when you were performing?
0: (laughs) The crowd was amazing. I think, um, I've played a lot of shows now in my life and, uh, it, they were they were very fixated. I think I would have to say that you know fine. It was a closing show, which is like a great honor. Um, and uh, and I had, there were people dancing. Uh, there were all ages. People were having a great time. People were kind of. There were some people towards the back that were wandering around and having good conversation. You know, moving. It was it was perfect.
2: And did you notice at some point that that
0: something was wrong? Not at all. Um, the, I think that was the thing that actually um, I wanted to highlight as being, as being quite disturbing is that um, from I'm not sure exactly when other people started discovering what was going on, but we were tearing down. We were kind of packing up the stage um, and people were dancing right next to the main stage, um, apparently when it happened. So I only noticed when uh, first responders, when BPD and first, first responders were already there. Um, and I looked up, uh, and someone had, people had actually come up to the stage to inform us because the crowd seemed to kind of go away and you would think that's natural. It's the end of the show. We closed Chinatown, um, the light up Chinatown festival. And so it was, a, it was, it, it was very jarring because you just looked up, um, and, and, and saw that people were being treated. And I had no idea that that's what had happened to those, those three poor people.
2: Oh, and when, so you were told about that, how did that, how did that make you feel? Um,
0: it's, I have to take a deep breath. It's hard to say when, firstly, there are a lot of community organizers in that space. Um, and so there, for me, there were a lot of people that I knew. Um, so my, you know, my mother was there. Um, and so immediately my thought goes straight to where, where is, where is the perpetrator? Where is, how do I keep everyone safe? Where do I put, where do I put people? Um, because people had come specifically to see the show, um, and so for me, it was kind of a safety thing, making sure that all the people that I knew were here were around me. Um, and then it was making sure that the people were being cared for, which they, they, they were. Thankfully, there was, you know, response within minutes. Um, what I have found since, um, I put a post on my Instagram, my, you know, I checked in with my band. Um, it, it, it keeps uh, coming up. Uh, through you and I think the body does hold trauma Um, and I can't begin to imagine how the people are feeling you know in their physical healing and recovery that were attacked Um, and I also want to hold that space for the community members that have now come away and have thoughts and feelings that um, they might that might feel like imposterous because you kind of think well I'm not the person that got attacked I don't I don't know how to feel um It's a very, very jarring thing, and that's my personal opinion.
2: Yeah. Do do you think Mm. the community is resilient, as you pointed out? Do you you think they will bounce back from this?
0: I absolutely, I mean, bouncing back is a hard, I I don't love that phrase because we we need to move through it. Um, And I think bouncing back is, yes, ultimately what what they would do. I I will hopefully be a very big part of that. Um, When things like this happen, it can be really divisive and we can have moments where we point fingers and we try and solve any one problem instead of a complex series of problems. The same way as we think a festival might be one day and it's, and it's a year in the making. Um, I think the thing that I love about this community and having been, uh, having performed and produced shows all around Chinatown is that the people who come and frequent that space really, really invest and We need for people to want to do that. It's really easy to step away in fear and say, I'm just going to go somewhere else or I'm just going to do something else. But this is living history. And the Chinatown Foundation and the people that have come together to produce this event, it's really important to know that we have to move through these things as we move through our lives. It's not about, well, what do I do to solve this problem in this this particular space? The problem is that these occurrences happen in shared spaces. And this is one of those shared spaces. So it's up to us to see how we can how we can come together, how we can hold each other, how we can let music and and arts and performance and 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 literally being with each other, how we can gather together to make this um, something that we can heal from.
2: Well, Christina, well put. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me, Simi. We appreciate that. Christina Lau is an artist advocate from Hong Kong who was on stage at the festival uh, when the attacks happened. And I know the big question so many people have is why?
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Let's continue this conversation this morning about public safety and what happened in Chinatown on Sunday night. We now know that Blair Evan Donnelly, a 64-year-old man, has been charged with three counts of aggravated assault. We also know, according to the VPD, that Donnelly was on a day pass from Colony Farm in Coquitlam, where he had been confined for the past 15 years. He had been found not criminally responsible in the stabbing death of his 16-year-old daughter. Obviously, this has led to so many questions, the biggest being how. How was someone with that kind of record allowed out on a day pass? Well, our producer, Bianca Rego, spoke with Michael Glietz who's an associate professor and chair of the Department of Sociology at McEwen University, to find out more about the system, what allows this to happen in our system. First and foremost, she asked him, what determines who is and isn't criminally, criminally responsible for a crime? And here's what he said.
6: They have to have committed the act. And they, they have to have had a guilty mind. So if both of those elements are there, a person is said to be criminally responsible. Now, if a person raises the mental disorder defense, they are claiming that, yes, they may have done the act, committed the act, but their mental disorder interfered with the other element, the guilty mind. So in those cases, and they're very rare, very, very rare. But in those cases, a person, the judge or the jury, finds the person not criminally responsible on account of mental disorder. Essentially, what the court is saying is this person is not guilty for reasons of insanity. So, How do you
7: prove that?
6: Well, that's, that's again, for, for the lawyers to determine in court. So, you know, one side, you know, the Crown Prosecutor might say, well, you committed the act, you planned it, you know. Whereas the other side, the defense might say, well, but the person's mental disorder impaired that, that ability to form the guilty mind, right? They, they acted because they are under some delusion or some mistaken belief or something like that. But ultimately, it's up to the judge or jury to determine whether that person had not only the guilty act, but the guilty mind.
7: I just feel like considering the whole thing is kind of left up to a judge and or a jury, it's all pretty subjective and it depends on who is telling the story and whether or not their story is believable in the court of law.
6: In some cases, a fraction of 1%, the judge or jury uh, determines the person's mental disorder interfered with the ability to form a guilty mind. Now, this is where it gets a little bit confusing. So having a mental disorder isn't enough to be found not criminally responsible on account of mental disorder. It's where that mental disorder impairs the person's ability to form a guilty mind. Technically, under law, you could raise the mental disorder defense with any mental disorder, but I think it would be, uh, you know, it's it's the more serious mental disorders that you know, are successful with the mental disorder defense.
7: I completely understand that and I sympathize with that. But if someone was caught in the act, like they were 100% hands down guilty of committing said act, why would they be exempt from the same punishment as someone who committed the same act but was unable to meet the qualifications of the
6: mental disorder plea? Again, they're not guilty, so you, you can't put a not guilty person in jail, but they are referred to, it's called the board of review. And each province has their own board of review. And they will make one of three decisions. The first decision is they can absolutely discharge this person. The second possible choice is the person can be discharged to the community, but subject to certain conditions. So they might have to report to a psychiatric clinic. They might have other conditions like, you know, stay 500 meters away from the victim. And then the third possible choice is the person, the NCR person can be detained in the custody of a hospital. So this is where they are held in a secure forensic facility. Shortly after the person is found NCR, NCR, They will appear in front of the board, and the board almost always chooses to detain the person in the custody of the hospital. What the law also says is that the case must be reviewed at least once a year. So the person has the right to have their case heard again, not determining if they're guilty or not criminal, but how they are detained will be reviewed at least once a year by this board of review.
7: Are there any patients who, despite having gone through that yearly review, will never be considered for daily release?
6: The, the process, for some people, they have their annual reviews and nothing changes for years and years and years and years on end. So how does that change? How do they get discharged to the community or eventually the absolute discharge where they are you know, have no conditions on them, well, that's, or whether
7: that, or not there's a possibility that they never will be able to get either yeah, of those.
6: And for some people, they never will. You know, I think most people found NCR are eventually discharged to the community, but not everybody is granted an absolute discharge. Some people stay in the system for decades and may never be granted an absolute discharge. Others move from detainment to discharge to the community, to absolute discharge quite quickly, maybe in a couple of years or so. The average is, you know, around five years, but that's average. That means there's some people who are in the system much longer, but some people might move through the system even quicker than that. There is an opportunity for the person to be granted an absolute discharge, but there's not a guarantee that they will be granted absolute discharge. They have to show that they've become more responsible. They have to show that their risk level is dropping. So when they first come into the system, they are potentially higher risk. But over time, as the psychiatric team gets to know them better, as these individuals show that they are lower risk or taking more responsibility for their own care, you know, maybe that might mean taking their medications, showing they're compliant with the psychiatric team, those conditions on them lessen. So the next step is usually, okay, we will discharge to the community and see how they do in the community. And some people might move to absolute discharge quite quickly.
2: Okay, so that's Michael Goliath, who's an associate professor and chair of the Department of Sociology at McCune University, speaking with our producer Bianca Rego about the process by which people are found not criminally responsible and then what happened to them afterwards. And we'll talk more about this.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Hey, don't forget, we have your chance this morning to win 10 screening passes to this year's Vancouver International Film Festival. It's happening September 28th to October the 8th. You check out viff.org for the festival lineup and showtimes. But for your chance to win, just keep listening this morning for that cue to call. Right now, we're going to be checking in with our Scott Chance. Good morning, Scott. Hey, how's it going? It's going.
4: Okay, fantastic. It's Tuesday. Yeah, it's Tuesday. Right? It is. Tuesday is supposed to be the hardest day of the week. Are you aware of that?
2: I am aware. I thought it was Wednesday. Isn't that why we call it hump day?
4: Well, but I think, like, once you get over Wednesday, that's like the hump at the middle of the week, and then it's all downhill Thursday, Friday. So
2: Tuesday is straight uphill
4: climb is what you're saying. Yeah, the the shine from the weekend has the rest has worn off, and now you got the most, like, a huge amount of the week still ahead. But, hey, we're here. Thanks. We're getting through. We're pushing through it, Simi. Get through it together. All right, what are we talking about? So there's been a lot of talk, a lot of stories lately about air travel and just how gross it is, right? It really is. Yeah, we've had, like, the vomit story. There was another story south of the border. It seems like, like, especially since COVID, right, everybody gets on an airplane and just pulls out the, like, sani wipes and starts wiping everything down. It's bad. It feels particularly bad when, you know, people are asked to actually sit in, like, vomit. And I'm sure, like, one of the things, I talked with Claire Newell on the weekend. She said that stuff, it doesn't happen every flight, but it definitely happens every day, you know, on airlines around the world. Somewhere. Somewhere, yeah. That it's it's really great. So to find out or try to find out at least like how how accurate this is, how spot on the idea of like airlines and air travel just being like filthy dirty. I got in touch with uh, Carrie Debink. She's a virologist at John Hopkins University. She's spoken out about this in the past. And I asked her like, is it true? Are airlines as gross as we think they are? Well, I think
8: probably different people have different perceptions of how gross, but I, I will say that You know, in most of your everyday surroundings, you have a little bit more control over the cleanliness. You know, in your house, like you kind of know what you've done and you know how often it's clean. And I feel like some of that feeling of grossness on a plane is that we don't necessarily know who's been there or if they've been sick or, you know, what's gone on and like who's cleaned it in between. So, bringing things like cleansing wipes and wiping things down like there's really nothing wrong with that there's nothing that's going to hurt you and you could actually be, you know, getting rid of potential pathogens like viruses that cause uh, colds or the flu um, that otherwise you might be coming in contact with so it's not a terrible idea to do something like bring Clorox whites or something
4: like that onto a plane. You, you mentioned catching a cold on an airplane. I think that that's something that always happens to me every time I travel on a plane. And it's because I, I feel like, whether how, tr- how much truth there is to this or not, I don't actually know because I'm not an airplane official or anything. But you know, you hear that they recycle the air and we're in this like sealed space where everyone is breathing the same air. And it feels like I'm more likely to pick up a, a scratchy throat or maybe even like, a cold or a flu just from being on an airplane. Do you think there's any truth to that?
8: Well, I mean, airplanes are environments where you are in close proximity with a lot of people. And so if there are sick people in your close proximity, then, you know, it's probably a pretty decent chance that you might come into contact with that pathogen. Now, Airlines, you know, yeah, it's a sealed area. However, like once the plane's in flight, the air filtration system is pretty good. It's really when you're kind of grounded in that initial, like, you know, people getting on the plane, taxiing, like, you know, people deplaning, that's when you are less likely to have like the air filtration system like working super well. So there are definitely times that are more risky for transmission of something like a respiratory pathogen. But it's actually not just breathing in the air. So something like a cold, like um, colds are caused by several different viruses, including one called adenovirus. And adenovirus is pretty stable on surfaces. So, like, let's say a little kid has a cold, and like you know, kids don't really have great hygiene most of the time, and they you know wipe their nose, touch the you know touch the um, tray table or the armrest, and that virus gets transferred. The next person that comes on may have like no idea that that kid, you know, was sick, or they, you know, touched these objects and got virus on them, and then they, you know, touch their tray table, then they're like eating food or like, you know, wiping their their face. Um, and there's a there's a there's a possibility for transmission in that way. So, you know, it's not just necessarily the air. Sometimes people are picking things up from, you know, the objects that are on the plane as well.
4: Are there, like, certain parts of an airplane or certain surfaces that are dirtier than others or more likely to be dirtier than others?
8: I'm not sure that I can give, like, a very scientific um, explanation on that. What I'll say is that there's probably places in the airplane that you're more likely to touch that could be contaminated. Like, I think the tray tables, the, you know, the the armrest. You know, the doors to the bathrooms, the surfaces in the bathrooms, like those are all places where like many people touch and come into contact with. So I I would say that those are probably the places that if you are going on a plane and you want to make sure that you're wiping down places, those would be the places that I would hit.
4: Okay. And what, maybe we'll make this the last question. What can people do to sort of protect themselves or stay a little bit healthier uh, when traveling, when flying and traveling?
8: Yeah, I think there's several things. Um, Number one, wearing a mask. That's gonna protect you against several respiratory pathogens. Um, I think if you bring in like Clorox wipes um, and you know, wipe down the tray table or the armrest or you know, places that you're gonna be touching that other people may have touched and may not have been cleaned properly. Um, And I'd say specifically like Clorox wipes because there are several viruses that, are are destroyed by bleach but not necessarily like other like alcohol and things like that um another thing that you can do is wash your hands with soap and water um this not only like not only does the soap like um sometimes destroy some of the pathogens that might be there but it's when wa- the water is like washing everything off your hands and then also if you you know if you don't have wipes and that's that, that kind of thing hand sanitizer is um you know, an okay substitution, but keeping in mind that hand sanitizer doesn't actually destroy all, all viruses, especially some of those that cause the cold, um, cause colds, So just, you know, be aware that, you know, you always want to
2: wash with soap and water as much as possible.
4: That's Carrie Debbing. She's a virologist at John Hopkins University. Uh, sage advice, Sammy, wash your hands.
2: Okay, I'm very good at washing my hands, knock wood, but I, I always used to make fun of Claire Newell from Travel Bus Bets because she t- always told me that she, when she gets on an airplane, the first thing she does is wipe everything yeah. down with the Clorox yeah, wipes. Yeah. but now your guest there said that that's not a bad idea. <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah. I mean, I d- guess it depends, out, to like, totally. It depends how how clean and safe and everything you want to be. My wife wipes down everything on the airplane. I never do. Honestly, like, we both get sick about the same.
2: Well, yeah, of course you do because you're in close contact, right, with each other. So um, thanks for that. Now I'm just going to be paranoid even more so when I get on yeah. an airplane.
4: Just take the wipes and wash your hands. Great. You'll be thanks. fine. Thanks.
2: Everything will be fine. <laughs> Everything is fine.
1: Scott, thank you for you got that. got This is Mornings with Simi.
2: We've talked a lot about our public health crisis when it comes to toxic drugs and overdoses here in BC. And at the heart of that is not only toxic drugs, but a problem with opioid addiction. Now, we know that men, primarily between the ages of 18 and 50, are the biggest casualties when it comes to overdoses. But what we don't know as much about is that the people who are most often being prescribed opioids still are older Canadians. Now, joining us now to talk more about this is Dr. Samir Sinha, who's a director of health policy research at the National Institute of Aging and the author of a report looking into this. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Simi. So, were you surprised to find out that there's still this large number of older Canadians being prescribed opioids?
9: I wasn't surprised because, as a geriatrician, this is the population that I serve, and I certainly see a lot of um, uh, a lot of utilization of opioids in this population, but a lot of inappropriate utilization, and that's what prompted myself and my colleague, Dr. Downer. To actually do this report to actually get the data from our Canadian Institutes of Health Information so that we could actually really dig deep into this and realize the scope of the problem that probably a lot of people are unaware of.
2: Okay and so what is the scope of the problem?
9: The scope of the problem is that the vast majority of opioids that are being prescribed in our country are amongst older people and that makes sense. This is where uh, you'll see a lot more issues with chronic pain. Um, but also a lot of people who have surgeries tend to be older. And these are the situations where opioids are more likely to be prescribed. But the challenge is is that when you see the rates at which opioids are being prescribed um, and the complications that result from them, things like what we call opioid use disorder or significant other issues like constipation, um, issues of confusion and which actually often are some of the number one reasons that land older people into hospital due to what we call adverse drug events, you realize that we're using quite a bit of opioids and getting a lot of complications as a result uh, from, uh, from, from its overuse.
2: Right. So this is what I was wondering then. If we are still prescribing this, is, is it, have we learned more? Are we more careful? Does it come with caveats? Do we do more follow-up? Yeah, and this
9: is the challenge. Like The good news is is that we're starting to see the rates of which that we're prescribing opioids in Canadians, and especially older Canadians, to start coming down. Canada used to be the number two uh, country in the world uh, in relation to opioid prescriptions. We're now about number three or number four, depending on which numbers you look at. So that's the good news, that we're seeing that there's a decreased utilization. But what we're not seeing is what you were just referring to, are we being more careful about how we're using these medications? Are we making sure that we are giving the appropriate follow up or looking to alternatives before we actually prescribe opioids? Yeah. And what we're finding right now is that we're not really maximizing alternatives. We're often reaching and prescribing these because we've been so used to doing so um, and perhaps not being aware of all the potential complications it can have especially if we're not using other alternatives first or actually prescribing opioids in a more appropriate way that will give people the pain relief they need uh, or the support they need but without actually the significant complications that we often see today.
2: Well, Dr. Sen, I have to say I'm a little surprised by this, given our history uh, with this over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. I mean, there's TV shows about this, there's books about this, there's stats that tell us we should be more concerned. And what you're saying is that we aren't as concerned from what it sounds like we should be.
9: Well, I think we've been obviously very concerned about opioid use, and we've often concentrated... Uh, on thinking about younger populations, where we see significant, you know, a significant opioid crisis, but more about using non-prescribed opioids um, and the significant deaths that have happened in a younger population. But if I tell you that the number one group that's dying from the use of opioids or related to the use of opioids are actually older Canadians, I think most people will be surprised. And often, because we're saying, well, these opioids are prescribed. And so the prescribers probably know what they're doing um, and are probably prescribing them properly. I think what our report points out to is that's not really, you know, always the case. And that's not because any doctor or any prescriber is trying to do harm. It's just we don't get a lot of good education about how to how to prescribe opioids, um, the alternatives that we should be considering in the first place, the real side effects and negative impacts these can have, particularly in older adults, and so how we should be actually prescribing them more appropriately and monitoring them. And so I think part of it, because we focus so much on the problems of opioids in younger populations, we don't think about it as being problematic in older populations. And I think that's perhaps taken our focus out, um, off of the, um, the use of these in this population that's quite vulnerable as well.
2: Isn't this going to be then up to the patient, Dr. Senhal? Like, do we have to ask, wait a minute, what are you prescribing me? Why are you prescribing me this? I don't know if I want an opioid.
9: We need everyone to be involved, right? So we need to have our patients, you know, more engaged to appreciate that if I'm an older person and someone's gonna suggest prescribing me an opioid, you know, I need to make sure that we're prescribing it properly, that we're actually looking at other alternatives first um, and that uh, and that we're, we're monitoring and we're well aware of the potential side effects. So patients absolutely have to be partners in this conversation, but really a lot of onus here, as we call it in the report relies on the prescribers. And those people who are teaching prescribers, so our medical schools, our schools of nursing and others, and our schools of pharmacy, we need to make sure that we as prescribers, we as practitioners, are really making sure that we we have this knowledge and that we're actually utilizing it very carefully with our older adults so we can educate them as well. But then also making sure that our older adults are asking the right questions because otherwise you know, we have a real gap and and a real potential for problems.
2: Dr. Sinha, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Sunny. That's Dr. Samir Sinha, the Director of Health Policy Research at the National Institute of Aging and the author of this report that looked at opioids and, and how we're prescribing them. And particularly what this report found is that there are still an awful lot of older Canadians, which they identify as over the age of 50, who are being prescribed Opioids, And it really did surprise me, actually, when I looked at this report, because I know that people think, oh, the opioid crisis is often associated with younger individuals. And and I think the opioid, the overdose crisis focuses on non-prescription use. I think that's the image that a lot of us have of it. But what this report tells us is there are still a huge number of Canadians who are being prescribed opioids without perhaps enough concern about listen how addictive is this this is going to be a problem how are we going to get you off this how long like you know how long are you going to take this for and this report says that older canadians are disproportionately affected they have the highest consumption rates of opioids along with elevated rates of side effects overdoses and mortality and that is primarily due to their higher prevalence of chronic pain and i was also surprised to learn in this report how common, this is in Canada. So this is what the numbers say in the report. Since the 1980s, the amount of opioids sold to Canadian hospitals or pharmacies has increased by roughly 3,000%. That's a huge number. In 2016... 20 million prescriptions for opioid medications were provided in Canada. So they were written in Canada. Now, one out of eight Canadians were prescribed an opioid in 2018. That's according to recent estimates as well. And, there, and you know, Dr. Sinha was trying to say that, well, the numbers have slightly gone down, but we're talking slightly from like 14.3% of prescriptions filled to about 12.3% over a period of about five years. But still, that's an awful lot of people still getting prescribed opioids without all of us in the community fully understanding the implications of that. If you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Boy, this next story is so frustrating. It's a story of someone who they're they're a builder and they spent three years building a cabin in the interior of the province. But what they wanted to do when they built this cabin was to make sure that it was as fire resilient as possible. We all need to think about that kind of stuff, right? These days. And so they did that, spent a lot of time doing it, making sure it was fire resilient. And then it burned down anyway. So how do you even protect your property these days? We're going to talk about the whole story of what happened here. Murray Frank is with us, the owner and operator of Building It Right. Good morning, Murray.
10: Good morning, Simi.
2: That sounds so frustrating. First off, tell me tell me about this cabin that you built.
10: Um, well, it's actually, uh, I was in 10, it's, it's our family cabin. It's a legacy that I was building for my daughter's daughters. Um, we do... Uh, Much of the education that's provided for continuing professional development for the builders in the province of British Columbia, as well as as a lot of research, we do a lot of work with the codes and, um, you know, this was my opportunity to build a a showcase and so not only was it built for fire resiliency because we recognized we're at the base of Cathedral Park uh, in a forest in a beautiful part of British Columbia But um, we'd also built it for um, true net zero performance, off-grid, environmental accountability. We worked hand-in-hand with First Nations to ensure that uh, archaeological studies had been done and that a land use agreement reflected a a sensitive use of the area. Um, And we opened the doors to the process for uh, building departments, uh, building officials, uh, builders, um, politicians, anybody uh, to come by while we were doing it. And we recorded the process, and it's actually our most popular 20-hour education series in the province. 10% of builders in B.C. have uh, seen that 20-hour series. So it was one of the components, and um, I guess it wasn't enough.
2: No, so yeah, like you did a lot. You went above and beyond. um, You did all the things that we're told to do, right? Like tell me about some of those components that you put into it. And you even cleared away all all the brush fall and everything around the cabin, didn't you?
10: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a, certainly an emerging awareness at a federal and provincial level. Um, I'm quite involved in what's going on in Lytton, and uh, although there's no actual codes on this, there is a you know a, a FireSmart Canada, and it's called a wildfire resilience best practice checklist, and it, it's clear that this is the beginning of of codes for building in contact with nature or in fire risk areas. Uh, and we, we thought, well, you know, there's a fair amount of work being done with this. And many of our colleagues, a lot of the engineering firms that are involved in this, we've had a lot of back and forth. And the suppliers, as we were building this, were extremely open and uh, um, um, interested in what we were doing. And so all the choices that we made were good. It was, It's fire-resistant roofing material. Uh, and, and there there's unless it's a diamond it's not really fireproof right. so building out a diamonds not practical so we have <laughs> to talk about resilience what you can do and, and uh, so we used a, a heavier gauge metal roofing we used a what's called a batten system so it uh, it actually has no openings anywhere in it we meticulously flashed all the transitions and we followed uh, all of the provisions for drip edge and safety right. materials. And, and a lot of people looking at the photos are, you know, and I can see why they say, oh, well, you put wood siding on the thing. And it burnt. Well, it's not, it's actually hardy cladding products. And these are fiber cement that are purely intended to look like wood. They're gorgeous materials. They're, they're well understood and well used. About one of their advantages is, you know, we were out there on the weekend taking, or yeah, on the wow. weekend taking a look for the first time and, but, uh, it, it's surprising because all the cladding and the roofing is just sort of laying on the ground. It, oh man. It, it was all resilient. Yeah.
2: So, Murray, then, you, like all of this is exactly what we're told that we should do. But what does that tell us then about what we know of of you know being fire resilient and the regulations? What does it tell us about those regulations?
10: Uh, I what well, that they're in they're in development. Uh, uh, you know, there, there's many of the experiences from california that have been incorporated into this. the windows had tempered glass in them uh, we went back and forth with our window manufacturer and and they took the time to evaluate how it sets against these different standards but it, it's there's also a lot of information we've been gathering during the process and later that suggests the nature of wildfire may actually be changing too there's, there's books that are written that are just coming out there's there's a lot of innovation that's happening out there. So maybe we're at the early steps of understanding. And, you know, the the chances are real, I guess, that the nature of a wildfire is changing. This was an interesting episode because we have cameras on the site and right. they were satellite connected. So we, we actually saw this fire coming. A beautiful blue day, birds flying through the foreground, and a little bunny in the corner. And 45 minutes later complete structural loss in the camera systems. Wow.
2: So what would you do differently, Marie? Like, are you going to do this again? And and what would you theoretically do differently?
10: Um, Learn from it. This was intended to be something that we could learn from and that we could disseminate to the builders through the province, through Canada, through North America. Um, Our primary focus wasn't fire resiliency. It was just another thing we put in there. We wanted affordability, buildability, teachability, repeatability, uh, we did it during COVID. We did it during so this was every bad thing that could have happened happened during the construction. Now apparently, immediately <laughs> near the end of it, um, so this was a test of our metal. And so when we went up, it was just uh, uh, Karen and Lexi and myself, our family, and and a few close friends, and we went up and 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 looked at it. You know, is is this taking it out of us, or what do we do? And and I think the consensus is. I, I, you know, we want to we want to go back in there and do it again. The valley itself has got some incredibly involved uh, areas that, uh, like you said, looks like a Tim Burton landscape, right? Oh wow! Um, but other parts of it are just uniquely green and and survived it. And and so I think <clears throat> the choice to actually rebuild in there makes sense. But we're going to do it as as a Phoenix project, as a 2.0, and we're going to try and gain even more information from in it. And the things that I think we're going to change is we're going to look more seriously at the windows. In
2: what uh, way? What do, is, what
10: do you mean? What uh, do you mean? Well, I think there's a lot to be learned there. We, we're having a professional engineering group come in who do fire investigations, forensic fire investigations, and they're coming in from Calgary to have a look. So we're leaving it undisturbed until they do. I'm not an expert in that. Um, you know, my my expertise is in building science and putting putting buildings up and repairing existing buildings and modifying them. And uh, so I want somebody to come in there unbiased and let us know where the opportunities are. And by us, I mean the entire industry and governance, you know, federal and provincial level and, and homeowners in the future and and learn what we can from this. Uh, but my suspicion in looking at it is it burned from the inside out, uh, which meant the flame got in. And we know that there were no gaps greater than uh, three millimeters or an eighth of an inch, which is one of the provisions, uh, because we did a door fan test on there as part of the energy evaluation because it was also net 0 and the total effective leakage area on that home by door fan test confirmation was less than three square centimeters. So around the entire house, if you used, collected all the little openings, it was less than three square centimeters.
2: And you still think it uh, got in?
10: Uh, we do, but it's certainly not going to, embers aren't going to be effectively able to get in through that. Um, so it had to break through one of our considerations, and the weak point is the window's.
9: Ah. Uh, So
10: maybe maybe that's it. And this is certainly not a reflection at all on the quality of windows that we put in there. They're amazing windows and and they have the best thinking in there. But windows are rated in minutes for fire resiliency. And, uh, you know, there's there's other factors here. You know, it was very clear that there was nobody on the ground and I'm not a professional firefighter. Uh, uh, I don't know that I would have wanted to win in the face of of that fire either. Um, But there was nobody there. Uh, you know, immediately before or during, obviously. But but Murray, this is such a
2: fascinating process that you're kind of undergoing here that I think really applies to so many British Columbians right now thinking about what we need to do differently. I'd love to have you back and talk more about it as this process continues. But listen, thanks so much for your time today.
10: No, I appreciate it, for sure. Really
2: interesting. Murray Frank is the owner and operator of Building It Right, built a cabin. It's supposed to be a legacy for his family and future generations. They tried to make it as, not tried to, they did make it as wildfire resilient as possible. They followed all the regulations and then some. They, they went above and beyond. And you know what? It's still burned down. And now they're trying to figure out why and what they can do differently. And honestly, we can all, I think, learn from that process. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com.